Well, good morning, everybody. Again, it's great to see y'all. Uh, today's a special day for for me, and uh, I was thinking about it this morning and just singing out in worship, just thanking God for who He is and the graces He's given me, and I know He's given you. But being a dad uh, now for second Father's Day ever uh, is just overwhelming, and. Uh, I uh, have had that song, that Chris Tomlin song in my head all morning. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You may not recognize it by the way I sound right now. It's who you are, who you are, and I'm loved by you. Okay, some of y'all do not. It's who I am. And man, it just, it's overwhelming. Uh, I thought I knew how much God loved me uh, until I had a kid. And then I realized that his love is so much greater than I could have ever, ever thought because the love that I have for my child, and those of your parents in the room and dads in the room understand this, like it's just overwhelming, um, overwhelming love. And if we would just get a hold of the kind of love that our good, good father has for us, man, we would uh, be the happiest of all people. And today's a special day because today, today, Mark, six years that I've been married to that beautiful woman right there. And so, um, happy anniversary, Michelle. And um, yeah, so it's a fun day. And um, we have a lot to celebrate in our God. And um, even if it's just for what he's done for us in Christ, but he's done so much more for us than that. And I hope today that you know his goodness and know his grace. Let me pray as we begin our time uh, in the word together. Lord, we thank you for this day of worship, and we just ask right now that you would speak to us. Speak, Lord, we are listening. We ask that we would not just listen with our physical ears, but we would listen with the ears of our heart, and that your spirit who has given us this word and still speaking to us through this word, Lord, and is able, willing to change our hearts for you, Lord, that your spirit would be at work to bring you glory today in our lives, that we might be more returned to you. Thank you, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ten life-changing questions that Jesus asks, like, well, who do you say that I am? Why are you so anxious? Does that do anything for you? Are you sleeping? Some of y'all have been worried, wondering about that one. Can't wait to teach that one next Sunday. Are you sleeping? (laughs) Who's the one who's greater? The one who serves or the one who's being served? Are these who've suffered so much worse than the rest because of what they've suffered? Which of these men among you proved to be his neighbor? Questions, questions, questions. We've been looking at them week after week in the summer. And we've been talking about how Jesus asked so many questions. In fact, he asked more questions than perhaps he answers, although he ultimately is the way, the truth, and the life, and he points us to all the answers. But he is a master at asking questions. And it's curious and amazing about Jesus because the questions that he asks really get at the core of who we are and bring us to know the core of who he is. And today, uh, we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 7. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 7. Last week, we were um, just a few chapters earlier in the same book of Matthew. And in fact, as we approach our text today, Jesus is still teaching pretty much in the same sermon. (laughs) And um, 
We're going to come to another question today that I'm excited about hearing with you what God has to say. I want to read the text and then we'll walk through it. It's on the screens if you don't have your Bible. If you do have your Bible, uh, Matthew chapter 7. Judge not, words of Jesus in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not. That you may not be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log? That is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. These are the words of Jesus. With just a few words, um, (laughs) here again, Jesus returns to his habit of exposing some of the less flattering aspects of human nature. (laughs) And somehow he finds a way to go right to our hearts, doesn't he? He uses one of his favorite rhetorical devices, hyperbole. Hyperbole, everybody. Hyperbole. No, hyperbole. What's hyperbole? It's just the use of exaggeration to the point of, well, absurdity. (laughs) And he uses this a lot because it disarms us, but it also, um, it's funny. And Jesus is funny. Whoever doesn't think Jesus is funny, whoever doesn't think God laughs, I just think that you're funny. Because I think Jesus has a real sense of humor. Like, a lot of times I read the Gospels and I just laugh. Like, he's really funny. And sometimes, like, his, but it's like those people who tell jokes for a point, And then it kind of sucks later. But it's funny right now, right? We'll get to that in a second. But he's really funny. And he's using hyperbole, right? And he's doing that to kind of disarm us. <laughs> but there is a point. Um, And in fact, the main question that I want to look at today is this question that he asked in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? So in other words, he's saying, he starts out and he's asking you, he's asking those who's hearing and he's asking you today, how come that you find it so easy to notice a, the literal translation is like a piece of sawdust. And that day, you ever been in places like our team right now is over in Kenya. And I looked at a picture that Jordan sent over this morning, and they were in the slums of Nairobi, and the streets are just covered in dust. All right, when it's rainy, it's covered in mud, and when it's hot, it's covered in dust. And there are particles that fly everywhere. And in a, in a culture like Jesus lived in, where before asphalt and all that kind of stuff, he's basically saying, you know, you, you know the particles that fly around. How is it that you're so quick to notice? The particle, the small little piece of sawdust. In other words, 
Anybody ever look at somebody else and you notice the one hair that's out of place on your spouse or on your friend or on your roommates or on your coworker's head, right? The one eyelash that's just a little bit crooked. The one part of their lipstick that's a little bit smudged. The one tiny pepper that's lodged in between their teeth. (laughs) Y'all know what I'm talking about. Ah, The little eye booger that they forgot to wipe out when they got up in the morning. Jesus, I mean, it's funny. He's going, he's calling out something that all of us have experienced. And if you say you haven't experienced this, you're just lying to yourself, right? Why is it that you find it so easy and you feel so comfortable and that you're just quick to notice the tiniest of little thing that's misplaced in your friends or whoever's, you know, I. But then he finishes the question, but I also am asking you this, um, but at the same time, why do you... not notice? Why do you find it not easy? Why are you not quick to recognize the log? (laughs) The log. It's funny, guys. (laughs) The log that you could put your whole family, load your whole family up onto and float down the Mississippi River. The log that you could cut up and build a nice house for yourself. The log that if you just applied a a chainsaw to it, you could make a 100,000 pieces of sawdust to float into all kinds of people's eyes. The log that a 100 yards away you could notice, anybody could notice. I mean, it's funny. (laughs) At the same time, why do you find it so easy to not see the log coming out of your own eye? (laughs) pretty funny. A lot of um, cartoonists have used this, both spiritual and secular. I mean, I'll just give you some examples so you can picture yourself. I mean, think of the couple sitting down, you know, having that moment of conflict and conversation, you know. Isn't that so often us, (laughs) you know, pointing out somebody else's fault with this? I mean, it's stupid looking, but this is exactly what Jesus is saying. If you go to the next one, if you're a business person, right, you approach a coworker or your boss or maybe your dad and you approach your children. I mean, how silly does this look? Like where you, you get into a conflict and you're like trying to point out the speck, but here you are, you've got a two by four. <laughs> I mean, imagine if you had a two by four coming out your eye. That would be painful. Some of y'all in the ER may have actually seen this. I'm not quite sure. Um, so does that happen in Memphis? Are we like... a place where people come to get experience removing two by fours from eyes? No. Okay. Gunshots, yes. Two by fours from eyes, no. Um, how silly would that be? If you go to the next one, you can see um, this is, these are two girls that are talking. Now, this girl, this cartoon has put a whole tree with a bird's nest in it. I thought that was really funny. Um, for you doctors and medical people, I know you have so, we have so many of those. Here's one for you. All right. Imagine. Uh, going to consult with your, your patient before you are, you're explaining to them what you're going to operate on, right? And we're going to do this inside of you, and you show up, and you've got this huge, I mean, their problem times like 5,000 in your own body. It's like, are you serious? Like, you're about to work on me when this is going on? Like, no. So, I, it's, it's funny. Um, I think it's funny. I think I think it's funnier than you do. <laughs> I think it's funny. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. And it's funny. 
if you really play the situation out. It's what Jesus wants you to do. Play it out. <laughs> it's funny until you, until you realize that it's about you. <laughs> and until you realize that he's just exposed your heart of sin. Um, the point is clear, right? I mean, with the profundity of the words of Jesus and how it penetrates our hearts and how it is applicable universally. I mean, even 2,000 years later, I don't even need to teach the rest of this sermon for you to get the point. It doesn't mean that I won't, but I'm saying that I didn't necessarily have to. Right? I mean, everybody. When you hear this question, why is it so easy? Why do you find it so easy? To notice the speck, the tiny speck of sawdust in your neighbor's eye. But yet you miss the log protruding from your own. We all get exactly what he's trying to say. We all get that. In some way, he's telling the truth about me. Jesus is asking us to acknowledge our propensity to judge. If you're writing this morning, you could write that down. The point is this, that Jesus is asking you to acknowledge your propensity to judge. And let's just be honest. Let's take it a step further. You don't need to go see a psychologist. I'll just tell you something that will save you a little bit you will realize that in your own life, you're most critical of others often in the things that you don't like about yourself. Just be honest about it. The the honest truth is that we find ourselves in the, often the things that we most despise in others, we most closely resemble ourselves. And in many cases, those of us who are most critical, standing over others with a tweezer in our hands, are those who struggle the most with our own insecurities. The deeper issue here, honestly, I really think that Jesus wants us to acknowledge our propensity to judge, but I think he asked it in the form of a question for this because I think he wants us to wrestle with a deeper question. And you may need to write this question down so that you can consider it, not only today, but in your life as you move forward. The deeper question is really why? Why? Why is it that we need to point out the flaws in others when we have so many of our own? Why is it That we find it easy, in fact, sometimes even delightful to criticize other people behind their backs. Why is it that we feel the need to offer other people unsolicited advice? Why is it that we are so blind to our own shortcomings? Why is it do we have 20-20 vision in seeing the shortcomings 
shortcomings of others, but almost no vision. We're almost blind to seeing the shortcomings of ourselves. Is it that Jesus is asking us to take a serious look? For me to take a serious look. To wrestle with answering the question of why. What is it in me that motivates me to be so quick to judge? And you almost, you almost hear Jesus asking the question, like looking at you and asking the question, really? Really? I mean, in the moment that you offer criticism, in the moment that you lash out, in the moment that you point your finger and blame someone else, Jesus asks you, really? Really? Seriously? (laughs) There's a couple of things that I think are questions that we need to ask. The first is, can we not search out our own faults and frailties? I mean, really? (laughs) Really? Can you not see and do the work within yourself to look for those same things happening within you? Really? (laughs) You know, it's interesting in the passage that Jesus calls us to stop judging others, but he does um, say that there's one that we need to judge, right? Look at verse five. There is one who Jesus calls you to judge. You hypocrite, first take out the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to take out the speck of the others. There's an action that he's calling you to take of judgment, but it's looking at yourself. <laughs> it's funny, um, as you get older, anybody get older and struggle? The more the older you get, you have uh, trouble seeing things that are immediately in front of you. Anybody? You find old people, you know, they're the ones at the restaurants that are like holding the menus way out here. <laughs> if that's y'all, please forgive me. I don't mean to make fun of you, although that looks silly. Um, just kidding. No, but it happens. The older you get, sometimes the more we struggle to see things close. And I know that's not true of everybody. Different vision, different ways. All the optometrists will come talk to me later. It's okay. I'm good with that. Um, but I wonder if sometimes as we grow older, and maybe it's not just older, but maybe it's further um, away from our beginning point with God. That if maybe we begin to lose sight of the things that are closest to us in our own self, our own brokenness, our own faults, our own desperation, our own helplessness, our own sin, has our capacity to see somehow been diminished? And I really believe that, and this is hard for me to say because I could be a critical person. This is really hard for me to say, but I'm gonna say it because it's true 
and we all need to understand it. That there is a link between those who are, who are inattentive to their own faults and those who are most observant of the faults of others. Often those who do not see themselves and their own sins and their own failures and their own faults and their own frailties and their own crap, those who don't see themselves accurately are often the ones who are the most observant and ready to call out and find it easiest to judge and to point and to cast blame on other people. I think about the story of, I was looking this week, every year we go to Serbia and we teach uh, Samuel. And some of y'all are familiar with the story of David. Anybody familiar with the story of King David in the Bible? He's one of the great kings. He's known as a man after God's heart, one of the great kings of uh, Israel's history in our Old Testament. He had a really dark moment, though, in his life, didn't he? In 2 Samuel, we learn that after he became king, he had sent all the men to the battlefield, and one day he had uh, looked upon a woman who was bathing uh, on her rooftop and saw her naked and lusted after her, and that lust became action, and that action became him inviting her into his quarters. That became him sleeping with a woman who was not... She was married to a guy, one of his generals, who was out on the field, They end up having a relationship. From that relationship comes a pregnancy, and he's freaking out, wondering, how in the world can I cover up the pregnancy? He tries to bring her husband back in order to cover up the pregnancy so that somehow he can say, he goes, oh, drink, eat, be merry. I'm just having a party. You should go sleep with your wife, hoping that somehow the pregnancy might be covered up, being the good, honorable general that he was. He said, I can't celebrate and have a lavish party while my men are dying on the field. He refuses to do what David wanted him to do. And in fact, after that, knowing that David's plans had not succeeded, he sends Uriah back to the front line so that he would be killed and then takes Bathsheba as his wife. It's just a big, stinking mess. It's a big mess. And the pastor, the priest at the time, Samuel, the prophet, goes in to address David. And he goes and he just begins telling David a story. And he talks to David about this poor man who had this little lamb. And he was a part of a kingdom where the king, the ruler of the day, had all of these lambs, as many as he wanted. And the poor man loved this little lamb. He nurtured it from the time that the lamb was born. He was treated as an own member of his own household. He nourished it. He he fostered it. He had a love relationship with this little lamb, like like a pet. And one day the king was going down and he had a guest coming in and he had a need of a lamb. And instead of taking one of his own or from somebody else who had a lot, he decides to summon this one who, this one lamb of this one poor man. It's the only lamb that he had. And David, upon hearing the story, he goes, bring this man in and let him be punished to death. He's so angry. How could this man do this? It's wrong. Nathan says, David, you are that man. He grabs David at a moment where somehow he had been so blind to his own sickness of his heart, to his own sins, to the actions of his life that were so broken. How is it that he could see sin in another and cast judgment on it, but somehow the thing that was closest to him, the grossness of his own heart and life, how could he not see it? Nathan uses the moment to call it to question. Somehow when we struggle to see ourselves, our sensitivity to the struggles of others begins to fade, doesn't it? 
if we just saw on a real tape the numberless sins and evils and failures that we had committed and the motives that even our best actions had been defiled with, would we not be blushed, confounded by God? It's like the woman in John chapter 8 that gets caught in adultery. And all the religious people of the day, oh, all of them decide, let's go stone her to death. And they all gather around and they take up rocks and they're getting ready to stone this woman. And Jesus says, stop. He says, if there's anyone here that's without sin, then you be the first to throw the stone. And one by one, you could hear the rocks hitting the ground as the people were left faced with their own sin and ultimately their inability to cast judgment. They released the judgment and turned and walked away. Humility, perhaps shame. We should not make it our business to cast stones at other people. We should inspect our own life before we inspect others. Really, Jesus asked? Really? Can you not see? Could you not search out the faults and failures of your own heart? Secondly, he perhaps would ask us, really? Really? Can you not consider the mercy that you have received? Verse five. One of the words that haunts me, I hate this word, and I think it's because I hate this about myself. Jesus looks at him and he looks at religious people a lot and he uses this word. He says, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. It comes from the Greek word that literally, it just means you play actor. You person who gets on the stage and pretends like you're somebody that you're not. Really? I know that's not you. I see the costume. Somebody's behind the mask. You play actor. (laughs) And you hypocrite. (laughs) We as followers of God and followers of Jesus, friends, aren't we the ones who should be most keenly aware that God could have justly left us like he did the fallen angels to reap the reward of our sin which is punishment exile being pushed out from God grace friends is not something God is required to give mercy is not something that he is required to give when you do wrong there's punishment for wrong we all understand basic systems of morality and law Do we not remember 
that God, being a just God that he is, could have left us to the punishment that we deserve? And instead of that, he had compassion. Instead of judging us, he came down from heaven. He left glory to take on the flesh of man to offer us forgiveness. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to come. It wasn't easy to live for us that we might have righteousness. It wasn't easy to go to the cross though he deserved nothing to give everything. It wasn't easy to spill his precious blood. It wasn't easy to give his last breath. It wasn't easy from the cross looking at his enemies to say, Father, forgive them. It wasn't easy. He could have judged, but he chose not to judge. In his love, he chose to have compassion and to forgive. Instead of pointing the finger, he laid down his every finger and he gave up his precious life so that we who had offended God could be reconciled to him. And we, now, recipients of mercy that we did not deserve, grace that we have not earned, we, as beggars before God who have received everything as a gift, we are gonna go around and criticize other people? Really? Can we not consider what mercy we've received? In Matthew chapter 18, I don't have time to go there, but there's a parable. You can look at it later this week. I encourage you to do it. Write it down. Matthew chapter 18. There's a parable of a man, Jesus says, that had such great debts before the king that literally his debts were so much that there was no way he could ever pay back his debt. His Think about his credit card bills were so high. His offenses were so great that there was no way that he could ever in his lifetime make things right. The only thing that he could do was to present himself before the king, the one who could, who could just completely forgive his debts and beg for mercy. And it said that the king, because of his heart, chose to have compassion on the man and he had mercy for the man. And he forgave all of his debts. But then suddenly, the man leaves the court. And what you find is as Jesus tells the story, he goes out from there and he goes back to all the people who owed him money. Though he had just been forgiven his debt completely, he turns around and says, you pay me your debt or else. You pay me your debt or I'm taking you to court. You pay me your debt or I'm coming after it. And Jesus says, how could this be? That one who's received such mercy could find it impossible to extend such mercy. And he goes and gets the guy and he brings him back. The king does. And he ends up giving him the punishment that he deserved. And he says, so it is with everyone who doesn't extend the mercy that they've received. Can we not consider what mercy we have received? We've got to keep ourselves in front of the gospel every day, don't we? We've got to keep ourselves in that place where we remember our brokenness, remember our need, remember that we are the beggar in front of the king with just a plea for mercy. And that he, in his wonderful grace, though it was not required, has chosen to forgive us all of our debts at the greatest cost, the cost of his own life. What recipients of grace are we? Who are we to judge? Really? 
can we not consider what mercy we received? And finally, he says, really, really, can we not choose to love others as he has loved us? Really? Can we not choose? Like, could you just not? Could, could, is this so hard? To love as he's loved you. It's interesting with my own family and friends, we want to protect people. When people come to attack, if, and this doesn't really happen, but if people were to come to attack anybody in my family or friend, close friend group, we'd be like, heck no. No, you don't. We protect them, right? We defend them, especially with ourselves. When people come to attack you, you are the best at defending yourself. Way to go. <laughs> You're so great at it. You've perfected the skill, actually. You're really great at it. You know how to get yourself out of any criticism. Way to go. You know, we should deal with others as we would want others to deal with us. We should deal with others as God has dealt with us. Love as God has loved us under the same circumstances in the same place. How would you want others to judge you? First Corinthians chapter 13. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love bears all things. Love forgives all things. Matthew chapter 5. We are called to forgive, Jesus says. Even our enemies forgive, forgiving the sins of others, seeking good for them rather than judgment of them. Hmm. Really? Really? Can we not search out our own faults and failures? Can we not remember the mercy we receive? Can we not choose to live and love as he has loved us? First John chapter four that we looked at. God is love. Those who know God have been born of God love as he has loved us. Why? Why? Do we find it so easy to see the speck in our brother's eye and yet we have a log in our own? Well, what does this mean for us today? I want to close with this and I've got a, f- a few things that I want to just say briefly before we close. I'm I'm going to be more careful than usual and not just speak my mind because I don't want it to be misconstrued. I really think that as Jesus said these words, he knew the age we'd be living in. (laughs) And I really think that I have a burden as a pastor for us as a church that we really live out this in our community and among the nations with others, especially those who don't yet know God. I really believe that Jesus foresaw, even as he was speaking this, this time that we would live in now, where I really think the church is more known for judgment than grace, especially in some camps. Um, And I don't, I think the tide of the church here in America is changing. And I certainly think that we're in a really great place as a church here. But I hope that we stay in that place. There are some who would say, oh, we've got to judge others. Isn't that the way that we share the gospel? You could find extreme examples like the California pastor this last week who came out and said, all the gays down in Orlando, they got what they deserved, the judgment of God. Makes me sick. Somebody needs to turn off his microphone. You can find more subtle examples in your water cooler workroom 
or even in the conversation sometimes in your own family or among Christian friends, where sometimes we look at people who maybe don't hold the same message that we do or don't hold the same morality that we do, and instead of having compassion upon them, we point our fingers and judge them. And some people would say, well, how else do you share the gospel? Isn't the gospel about judgment? (laughs) Okay, yes. To share the gospel, you have to talk about sin. You have to talk about consequences of sin. You have to ultimately talk about judgment of God. I get that. But you also take them to grace and you take them to love. You take them to forgiveness. I am not saying that we change the message that we share. I am saying that we have to be careful about the way that we share our message. The way that we speak the message of the gospel must show that we all are under the judgment of God and that we're all needy for his undeserved grace. Again, speaks not to the message, but to the method. And one of my big concerns is that we as a church have to be sharing the gospel with people. We have to. You have to find a way to bring people to know God. I really believe that there is no life apart from a relationship with God, that this is life people living in relationship with God and you should carry the burden of wanting people in your family and in your friend group, in your community, in your workplace to have a relationship with God and you should be working to invite them into that relationship with God. But as we talk to people about this and as we share the gospel, you need to remember, friends, that as you share, you are not better than anybody that you share with. You are equally as broken as any person that you would ever invite to repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ. The message that we share is, come on, you need to be better like me. Too many people associate Christianity with morality or some higher level of living. Come on and be better like me. Do the church thing like me. Be good like me. (laughs) Terrible message. That's not the gospel. The message of the gospel is this, that friends, I'm not better, I'm broken. And you're broken too. There's none of us that are better than anyone else. The only thing that separates me from you is that I have recognized my need for a savior and I'm inviting you to as well. The only thing different about me is that I've put my hands into a forgiving, compassionate God who is willing to have mercy, and he has changed me. He has forgiven me of my sin. I am not more better than when I was the day I was first saved. I am equally broken. The only thing that I claim in my life is that God has been gracious to me. He's forgiven me, and I didn't deserve it. He's poured out his love, love that came in a person, Jesus, his only son, to live, die, and be raised again for anyone who would believe to have life. I want to talk to you today about a great God who loves you. And I'm not coming at this today telling you that I've done something good that you need to do too. I'm just saying that God has done something great for all of us. And I want you to receive what I have received. I want you to experience the life that he can give to dead, sick, broken, twisted, corrupt, 
corrupted heart people like me. <laughs> Amen? We're not any better than anyone else. Our gospel presentations have got to begin with confessions of our own brokenness and then extend into invitations for people to come and find grace. And I really believe that among the millennial generation, among people who are searching for God, one of the biggest barriers for them coming into the relationship with God and into the church is that they hear too much judgment. They see us as some moral moral group rather than some group of broken people, just like every other group. We're just as broken as any other group that you would point your finger and say, oh, I can't believe them, including the terrorists who bomb up a club and the people who are choosing maybe alternative lifestyles and what you would choose who are in the club, both are equally broken and they're just as broken as the pastor standing before you today. We are broken sinners before the hands of a merciful and gracious savior and he is our only hope. So as we share and talk about Jesus, we don't share from a position of judgment. We share as an invitation to come and receive grace. It starts with a confession of our own brokenness and need and then extends to us inviting people to experience compassion that is not deserved, love that never ends, forgiveness that is real, new life that can change us from the inside out. Friends, this is our message. But we are not those who judge. Why? In closing. Jesus is trying to help you see your propensity to judge and he's trying to help you do something about it. And I think you have a strong resonance. I think you feel a strong pull to examine this question more. Why is it, friends, that you find it so easy to see the speck, the tiny little thing in your brother's eye, but you're missing the tree coming out of your arm? Could it be that he's inviting you to draw nearer to the gospel? He's inviting you to say, God, would you break my heart? Would you humble my life? Would you bring me nearer to Jesus? By helping you to see your own heart. (laughs) The bottom of this issue is your heart. Why, why, why is your heart so proud that you don't approach others with humility that you need to approach God. Humble yourself. Hear Jesus' invitation. And could it be that wrestling with this question even more could be the very thing that continues to make us the light and the darkness, the city set on the hill that other men are drawn to the grace of Jesus. Not put off by the judgment of silly Christian morality, but rather drawn to the true message of a forgiving, wonderful Savior. Remember the deeper issue. It's your heart. I just invite you this morning as Robbie comes and we transition to our time of response. I invite you this morning to come to our merciful Savior. I invite you to let this question wrestle with you and root out things in your heart that don't need to be there. If you're here this morning and you've always thought the message of Christianity is a message about increasing morality of its followers, it's just wrong. The message of Christianity is about Christ, our God, 
who came to rescue broken people. The church is primarily a hospital for really sick people. And we have a remedy. His name is Jesus. I just invite you to come to Jesus this morning to receive mercy from a Savior who gave his everything that you might have new life in him. Come to Jesus. For the rest of us who are followers of Jesus, I ask you to wrestle with this question. ask you to pray for humility. I ask you to confess your brokenness. I ask you to ask the Lord that in your life, in your words, in your actions, in your gospel sharing, that you would embody the compassion that he came to give. He did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Let all of our words be seasoned with grace. Just pray that God would allow you to see your own sin to recognize that he has been merciful to you and ask him that you may love as he has loved us